Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk. Well, we uh, have a very exciting show today. They are all very exciting, but this one in particular is pretty special. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Before I tell you what we are getting into today, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. So Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love traditional roots music, she wants you to check out Tina and Her Ponies album Champion at tinaandherpony.com or wherever you listen to music. Okay, I had the opportunity to go to Brandi Carlisle's Girls Just Want a Weekend Festival, which is all women headlining a music festival down in the Cancun area of uh, the Riviera Maya. And had a great time. Got to interview a few very special ladies. And their interviews will be popping up on Basic Folk over the next few weeks. Today, I am like unbelievably going out of my mind. Emily Sailors of Indigo Girls is on Basic Folk today. What? Yes. She came out with a record. Her first solo record ever a couple years ago. Murmuration Nation. We talk about that. We talk about hip-hop. She's a huge hip-hop fan. We talked about women mentors. We talked about reflecting on the music of Indigo Girls, which, by the way, the reason this episode's coming out today is that 30 years ago this week, if you're listening, February 28th, 1989, the self-titled Indigo Girls album was put out. Uh, So she reflects on a couple of those songs. Uh, Yeah, and just is so cool and awesome and really open to my questions so um oh also hope you can stick around after the emily interview we're going to be introducing you to a brand new up-and-coming fiddle player singer songwriter named lizzie plotkin she has a record coming out in march and we'll talk to her and share some of her music on basic folk and oh man here we go here is the interview with emily staliers Oh my God, it's Basic Folk. All right, well, thank you so much for doing this. It's so great to talk to you. Um, So I want to talk about your guitar playing to start off with, if that's all right. Sure. Um, So from my perspective, I don't know how you feel about it. You've inspired like generations of guitar players. Um, And I was wondering what your relationship with your guitar playing was like. Well, I don't know about it. inspiring generations of guitar players. I mean, it's always, you can always be better. You know, you you play, you know, more fluently than some and much less fluently than others. I was just re- recently watching a YouTube video of Mark Knopfler and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> 
I would have had to start a long time ago. Um, but when I found guitar, I was nine years old. It was lessons at the YMCA. I came from a musical family, so we had tried different instruments. But there was something about the guitar that was compelling to me. Maybe because I had a cousin who was a professional guitarist, performer. Um, but at any rate, I started lessons at the Y. And from the second I put a guitar in my hand, that was it. That was my mm. instrument. And not only... My instrument, but it was my um, uh, vehicle for getting my feelings out, for writing songs. I could take it with me, and I did, everywhere. And so it became a very, very personal relationship from the very beginning. I really couldn't put it down. Mm. Uh, I loved it, loved playing all the time. I could hear by ear pretty well songs, so if I heard a song, I could figure out the chords pretty easily. I remember learning Diamonds and Rust at a young age, and I don't know whether I fingered it the way Joan did, but um, I played it close enough so that I could play the song, and that was very satisfying to me, to learn how to play songs by ear. Um, and so, you know, I, I also took classical guitar lessons when I was 11 for two years. Mostly my dad wanted me to. Yeah, how'd that go? It, it was, I mean, it was great for my technique. And some of the things I played when I was 11... I can't even believe it because I try to play them now. I remember some of the finger and I can't do it. I mean, I practiced a lot and it was much more of a discipline and I read music. So it was very, very immersed, almost like learning a language and really, really knowing it. So it was quite uh, like improving and growing rapidly for those two years. Hmm. And then I quit classical and just kept up at my own pace. But I love guitar playing. I love it more than singing, really. Yeah. And getting to play electric guitar now. Like, if I'd never hooked up with Amy, I probably wouldn't be playing electric guitar. She just she has that rock side. Mm. And she always encouraged me to play electric guitar. So, But I still feel like a very, very baby electric guitar player. So when you made your solo record, it was your first solo. It's been your first solo record ever, and you had to overcome a lot of fear. And it was very brave to do a solo album so different than anything you've done with Amy. Wondering how that experience emboldened you, and how it might have been a painful experience, if at all. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it was painful. I mean, it was like uh, I don't. I think because it was my first. I suppose it's like a parent's having their first child and being anxious about what to do and to do it right and how to do it and how to create a good environment for the kid. It was like, what kind of environment am I going to create for this album? I mean, it's it's just an album in the end. It's not as important as human life or for anything. Sure, yeah. But I think because it was my first, I put a lot of pressure on myself. Luckily, Lyris Hung produced it, and she's just, has an incredible breadth of musical knowledge and a, a, just a, a, a musical imagination that just knows no end. It's so expansive. And so I plugged into her, you know, her brilliance, mm. and she really took me on a ride. So I wrote the songs. We co-wrote one. Um, but the process was different. It's not like I wrote them through and played them all on guitar, and then that's how we put them on the album. Mm-hmm. Lyrus really wanted to put certain parts in certain places, fill in the space rather than strumming through a song all the way. I may play a, a, a guitar a little part here or a guitar part here. So some of my learning curve was trying to perform those songs live without a band and mm. having them transferred from that. Yeah. And I, I had a very difficult time. And in fact, I don't really play. I play one song 
from that album live a lot, and that's Train Inside, because mm -hmm. I actually recorded that by playing it through on this on the song. But it's more important for lyrics to put pieces in it. And I think a lot of times you, you get a better record if you mm. do that. You get a better album. Um, I mean, better is not a great word choice, but it's more expansive. And mm. there's something about the strumming through a song is fine or picking through a song, but it takes up a lot of the frequencies in, in one area. But if you patch things with different sonic frequencies, you know, instrument textures and stuff, you end up with a completely different canvas at the end. Um, that was exciting. But it was a struggle. I was insecure. You know, I was... It also turns out it was the season before I got my appendix out. So my health was not great. I didn't realize how it was affecting my spirit. Mm. Um, so there were just some things in there. Um, I did a pledge music campaign that the fans were incredibly supportive. Yeah. And that was a lot of work, lots and lots of work. And so it was a great undertaking for me. The next one will be so much more relaxed. Oh, good. So much Looks more good. relaxed. Yeah. So now that you're working on another Indigo Girls album, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. what can you say about how your solo project and that solo experience is affecting this new record with Amy? Really good question. I mean, I'm much more relaxed in the studio now. I, I kind of have a feeling of whatever comes up, like I believe in practicing and focusing and working out some parts, but now a lot of times I really believe in just what comes in the moment mm. could be the best part. And I'm also quite focused now on putting things in spaces rather than on top of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely an influence with working with Lyris and doing a solo album. Did she have you do any, like, it's so interesting to hear you talk about, like, putting things in spaces and sort of just, like, taking things as they come. Like, was there any, like, non-musical practices that, that she would have you participate in to sort of expand your uh, subconscious? No, but we had a lot of conversations. Yeah. Not practices, but she just was very, very firm and confident in the fact that these songs would translate however they were performed. I never mm. got to that leap where right. I could play any of these very, very produced songs on guitar. I just, I think I missed the sonic uh, breadth. Like a, like a lack of control over how things were sounding? Well, more like if I just play this on an instrument and play through it, it didn't feel as satisfying. It didn't feel the only incarnation I knew the songs in was to have them produced in a way that was very full. Incredible drummers, you know, bass player, um, players, all these instrumentalists who introduced that music to me. And so mm -hmm. then when it was just me and an instrument, it was like, I can't do this. <laughs> oh. But we had lots of conversations about how they could translate and that a song was just as valid in one incarnation as in mm -hmm. another. And Lyris just also talked about the importance of finding space for things rather than just jamming it all together. I wanted to have more um, beats on the solo album, more, and she really, I, I wrestled her to the ground for a couple of actual machine hmm. beats, but in the end, she wanted the drummers to emulate the beats, so play them by a human yeah. rather than by a machine, and uh, I gave into that. I'm glad for the most part. Great. 
Um, so we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the Indigo Girls self-titled album. I think it's February 28th. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I've read and heard many times that Joni Mitchell says that she developed new connections to her songs as she grew older. Does that ring true for you on these these songs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Closer to Fine, for instance, from that album, I wrote that when I was... I guess just around the end of college or maybe slightly post-college. And I was in a completely different frame of mind. And so all those words and that searching for this and that, not finding the answers in one thing was very, very important for me to write about back then. Mm -hmm. And now that song is just like a hoot nanny sing along, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it is, I take it more like, you know, just chill. Don't, don't worry <laughs> so much. Don't dig so hard. But there are other songs that really, really, they kind of, um, they latch on to what's going on in my life at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're written so that they're not so specific that they just tie me to that one time, but they're universal enough in human experience that they can last through the years and then I can, my current experience as me latches onto them and the same thing with Amy's songs. And so that's cool because it keeps them fresh. And there are some songs I just don't like them anymore, so we just don't we just don't play them. Right. But the other ones that go all the way back, still have a life of their own. Yeah, that must be cool to like write a song like to keep revisiting a song thirty years later and be like, hey, this is a pretty good song. Well, I never think that. <laughs> I always think it, there's a couple songs where I'm like, this is a good song. I don't know where this came from, but this I know this is a good song. Yeah. You know? And then there are others. Most of the rest of them where I'm like, oh, I could have tweaked this line. I I could have done this, I could have right. done that, but I think that's just like what that's creators the, do. Yeah. Everybody mm -hmm. does it. Yeah. Know, the artist's condition. Yeah. yeah. Not even artists, but I think even people in other lines of work do the same thing, just scrutinize their work and mm. how it could have been better, what could have been different. Totally. Hi, it's Cindy, just breaking in here to say that uh, I mentioned this at the beginning that we do have an interview with Lizzie Plotkin coming up, an up-and-coming fiddle player and singer-songwriter, really cool musician. Um, in fact, she has a solo record coming out in March, um, and I will share a very brief clip with you right now to give you a taste of what is to come, and we'll get to that coming up very soon after this interview with Emily Saliers. Here's a clip from Lizzie Plotkin. lucky enough to work in Pittsburgh with Rosemary Welsh at WIP. She's been at the station for 37 years and she and I worked together 
for over 11 years. We like sat next to each other and she just was like a mentor for me, gave me so much like personal and professional advice. And she also talked to me a lot about what it was like to be a woman in her 50s in the radio industry and not just the radio industry, but the world. And she talked about how women her age start to become invisible to the world. Um, and you're a little younger than her, but and, and have a more like public profile, so it might be different for you. But how do you see that to be true? And if it is, how do you handle it? I, I definitely think it's true. I think that a lot of that is based on sexism. There's just a lack of uh, respect and value for women past a certain point once they can't be sexualized in the same way. And we have like societal norms on how older men age beautifully, but older women do not. And, you know, all this bullshit about the drive of the man and how it's got to go after this or that, you know, just crap that we've been made to believe. Well, I don't believe it, but... So I think that that is a societal problem that women as they age become invisible. Now on the like, on on the personal and and the small microcosmic level, those who are in community with older women know that women mentors are invaluable. We can't do without them. I've had women like you've had with Rosemary that have mentored me in that way. So there you have the like, massive macro societal problems with the way that women are valued, especially if they can't be objectified and fit into that paradigm mm -hmm. that's male and has to do with the heteronormative um, paradigm, really. So for me, like, well, Amy and I had Caroline Aiken. She was a little bit older than we were. She was playing at this bar called Good Old Days. She was an established local artist that also toured. She shared her set with us. She took us under her wing. She was gracious, generous, always let us sit in with her or let me sing a song during her set. Stuff that you never forget. And now women like Winona LaDuke, um, the great Native American activist leader from Minnesota from the White Earth Reservation who Amy and I have become friends with. So these women that we know, like you can't live without your mentors, especially your women mentors, because mm -hmm. women are still, we don't have the power uh, we have our own kind of power, um, a spirit power and an energy power that's um, undeniable and I think frightening to a lot of men. But we don't have the power in business and the power in decision-making, the power politics is getting better. Um, so I think uh, it's true that women become invisible, but not across the board. So it's one of those things where the strength is not completely under the radar, but really uh, informing the lives of those of us who plug into that yeah. and believe in that. I get that. All right, let's talk about rap music. Yes! <laughs> yes! So you are a big hip-hop fan. You're drawn to the brilliance of the rhythms in hip-hop. You really identify with political, uh, political hip-hop. Yeah. Um, the rhythmic center and the powerful messages. Can you define what you mean by political hip-hop? I would say political hip-hop is, uh, you know, hip-hop with a message that that uh, pertains to social issues, so or political issues or societal issues. So, like, very early on, Public Enemy, uh, I would call them a political hip-hop. I mean, they had some songs that weren't, but, you know, Chuck D was talking about uh, the inequality for black people, about black prisons, about... 
um, how people get afraid when everybody else gets a gun, but when a black man gets a gun, there's a problem with it. Um, all these songs, she watched Channel Zero, you know, about the bad effects of television and, and what gets shown on that. Just uh, takes a nation of millions to hold us back. It was a brilliant album. That's political rap. Um, Talib, Talib Kweli is political rap, you know. Um, Rage Against the Machine, political rap. And uh, I'm probably not thinking of a million, million different, you know, KRS-One back in the day. And, of course, um, Tupac. Hmm. Hugely political in a lot of his stuff. Not all of his songs, mm -hmm. but, but I think it's like Indigo Girls were political in some, but not all. Right. Or considered a political band. So recently, I took a pretty deep dive into hip-hop at my radio station and also became a huge fan of hip-hop, too, but um, grappled with a lot of topics of, you know, gun violence, drugs, violence towards women, and thinking about these things are symptoms of systematic issues. So how do we wrap our heads around that violence? Like, how do you grapple with the importance of the message but deal with the criticism in certain parts of the message? I have a really hard time with that myself. I think the first thing, like some of it is just intolerable. The misogyny, the way women are spoken of in some contemporary hip hop. I mean, it's just, I remember when Queen Latifah came out with UNITY and she's like, who are you calling a bitch? You know, because that word bitch, I can't stand that word. I, for me, I can never take it back. As much as we try to use it in a certain way, if you look at the origins of that word and how it was used to demean women, and still is in, in every way, um, but Queen Latifah back then was like, you know, pointing a finger at that misogyny, and mm -hmm. that song was very important for me. She was very important for me as a hip-hop artist um, because of the content of her lyrics and what she explored. But anyway, I struggle daily with that. I mean... And what I try to do is, is be discerning about what's absolute glorification of violence and guns. And there are some like gangster rap rappers who have not lived that life. We're just, you know, producing this music and the content of these lyrics that doesn't reflect their own experience fully. And, and that's just glorification, hmm. you know. And there are other rap artists who talk about those artists as well. And then the other thing is that I try not to judge it based on my experience as a privileged white person. Mm -hmm. So if there's someone like, you know, well, Young Thug, I'm a huge fan of his. So if you, you don't even have to study his background, but you have to know that he grew up with a very hard life, you know, underprivileged life, always was in trouble, lost his brother to violence. Um, and yet he's incredibly creative, sensitive, beautiful man from what I can tell from his music one of my songs that I die over his that is from his um album slam slime language and it's called oh yeah and that album included a bunch of his family on it he's just all about family he's like why should I know anybody else I've got 100 family members yeah. that I love anyways his sister sings on it and um the language is I'm the one who gave you this piece of jewelry and, you know, Gucci shirt on and good pussy, good jeans, you know, and he's talking a lot of, about material things that he's given to this woman. 
And so those are not the lyrics that I would write from my own experience. Mm -hmm. I don't have the same value on jewelry or, but I can't judge what gifts from one person from a different uh, orientation in life means. And then I, I, I hear his voice and the way he sings it and raps it and then the beat. I mean, I'm going on and on about this one song, but I think my point is there's a lot of these rap and hip hop artists who are really singing their experience and it's really different from mine. And, but as far as the misogyny goes, I, I can never accept it. You know, I can take the music for what it is, but when it comes to a line that's completely degrading to women, you know, I don't know how, I don't care really how people in those communities, um, think about women, but I'm never going to be able to say, you know, in terms of morality or ethics or just basic human compassion that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you've got an artist like Kendrick Lamar, who's amazing and respects women and Tupac respected women and a gazillion rap artists who respect women. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed bag, like, like anything. Yeah. I think it's definitely a really uh, delicate conversation to try to have as like people who are outside of like who basically are like guests in the hip hop world. To, yeah. To I can't, yeah. I can't speak for any of it. I'm very, yeah. very, you know, I mean, I just, who knows what I just said that took so long, <laughs> but I'm very, very cognizant of the fact that I'm white. I'm privileged. I cannot make any judgment or, you know, I just, I just love the music and I love so much of the content. Yeah. I, th- yeah, definitely. It's incredibly intelligent, uh, genre, very misunderstood. I yeah. Think. So it's great that you are advocating for it in your circle. Yeah. 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 Okay. Food. Yay. Food is an important topic in your life. You have a restaurant in Atlanta called Watershed. What has been your relationship to food from growing up to now, and how do you see music and food intersection intersecting? Um, well, actually, we just sold Watershed last year, so we had it for almost twenty years, and someone else bought bought it. So now I'm out of the restaurant business currently. How does it feel? Uh, you know, it feels fine. <laughs> there was a time where I was intent on going to the very finest restaurants and. Um, but the finest restaurants as well are like, there's this stretch in Atlanta called Buford Highway and there's like restaurant communities from all over the world. And so their food is represented in mostly like these little dives. There's no atmosphere at all except for the energy of the people eating there. Yeah. So I was never a snob about food, but there was a time when it was very important for me to eat fine food. And that's just not the case anymore. Um, I'm grateful to have something like that, but um, I don't really want to spend as much money on it anymore. I'm just focused on different things. But I've been a foodie since I was a kid. Uh, my sister and I, if we were having a good meal, we would talk about what we were going to have next week. And I was addicted to fried clams at Howard Johnson's. When my family <laughs> used to take road trips, they would, I would get permission to eat them for breakfast when everyone else was eating eggs. And, and I just always have loved food and thought about food. And so when Amy and I had a little break in our schedule a gazillion years ago and I had these partners and we wanted to do something and we were all foodies and, and so we decided to have a restaurant. But I, I think that food and music and the way they bring people together is very, very similar. 
you have the um, the regional quality of food. So you know the way certain southern music takes you right down south, mm. and without even knowing it intimately, it can speak to a region. And it's the same way with food that's prepared that's regional. Um, also, I believe in things in their own seasonal time. You know, so you wait until the weather gets warm before you have the perfect strawberry or the perfect watermelon and, you know, peas in the spring or fava beans and root vegetables in the fall. And so it becomes very cyclical and almost like ritualistic in a way. And I think that music is something that has to come in its own time when it's ready. There's timing involved. Mm. There's seasons of life that are reflected in it. So I just think there are countless... And you know the way you sit around a table with a bunch of people who are into sharing food. So music is shared, like food is shared. And um, sometimes sports is the same way. Brings people together <laughs> yeah. to, unless they're angry about their team losing. You know? <laughs> but it's food and music mostly that are, yeah, you know, kissing cousins like that. Yeah. I remember uh, my uncle and aunts lived in Atlanta powder springs georgia for a little while and we would go visit them and we went to varsity oh yeah yeah, yeah. and i didn't drink uh carbonated beverages and i asked for like a cup of water and they were like what? <laughs> i'm sorry what? don't you mean a coke yeah <laughs> ginger ale no it's not water but yeah 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 well, fuzzy yeah. fuzzy drinks yeah <laughs> sugary drinks yeah yeah um well thank you so much this has been so great to talk I really appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. You're, you're excellent. That's obvious. Thank you. Oh, my word. When Emily Saliers told me I was excellent, I was like, I can just shut everything down right now. That was amazing. That was so nice of her to be on my podcast and just be so cool um so yeah i want to mention after we stopped the tape she was like oh man we didn't get to talk about bony bear and then we both like freaked out over justin vernon and how crazy talented he is but it's just so clear that she is such a huge music fan and that uh really comes across in her personality all right as I mentioned, we are going to be getting into an interview right now with an up-and-coming fiddle player and singer-songwriter, Lizzie Plotkin. Uh, she is originally from Nashville, but lives in uh, the wilds of Colorado. Uh, she has a pretty incredible Instagram where she chronicles her outdoor time. Uh, her record is coming out in March, and uh, it's coming out on March 8th. It's called We Will Sing, her debut solo album. Very interesting person, very nature-centric and uh, I had Laura, my producer, talk to Lizzie. Uh, and so let's get into that interview right now on Basic Folk. It's Lizzie Plotkin. Lizzie Plotkin, welcome to Basic Folk. Thank you. Let's just hop on in. All right. So your father, Stephen Plotkin, was a composer and a musician in his own right. He unfortunately passed away when you were about two. So you never got to play necessarily with your dad in um, the flesh form, but I wonder, he left you with this rich musical inheritance that you talk about kind of piecing together as you've grown older and meeting people who has who have been affected by his music. 
And I wonder, as you know, a musician in your own right, navigating your own career, your own sound, how you think that affects your relationship to creating and to music in general? Well, there's a lot of ways it has guided me. I will sort of look for guidance um, through him and his spirit and what he left and his sort of legacy, um, which is always a very positive thing, you know, to have someone in my life, whether it's just in a spiritual realm to ask about, you know, what to do with music and um, in this crazy industry that we're in. And so I have that, which is really special. Um, And then also, when I first started playing, um, I was mostly like accompanying folk music, like as a fiddler, you know, I was playing the background sounds of fiddle in in folk music, because I met these women out here in Colorado who were writing songs and I loved to just fiddle behind people singing and and it was kind of, that was kind of how I cut my teeth I would I, I back I just just did love to back up singers mm. as a fiddler and um and play those fills and stuff and about a year and a half or two into it when I first started traveling to play I ran into my mom's friend who was a folk singer and had my dad play on some of her records and she sent me a recording of him playing uh, in a genre that was very similar to what I was doing at the time and there were literally licks <laughs> that he played that uh, that like I, I play <laughs> like, wow. and it was just so cool to feel that and be like he didn't teach me that no one taught me that I wow. thought I was just making it up because that's what I was doing. I've always been a very expressive, creative person. And I, that's why I love the fiddle. It's like, you just get to create all the time and play all these fills and melodies and, um, accompaniment. And so it was just so cool to hear that and be like, Oh my gosh, that's me. Like it could have been me. If you close your eyes and you played the two next to each other. Anyways. So that was like a cool moment where I realized that I really had this, um, I had him in me and I had his music in me and no matter what I did, that was going to be part of it. That's really cool. So I know a little bit about your dad and I wanted to know more about your mother as well. What does your mom do? Um, My mother is a retired psychiatrist. She was both a therapist, like People always loved having her as both a therapist and a psychiatrist. She was kind of one of those people that could walk that line, mm. not just prescribe drugs, but make people feel okay in a room too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I think my mother's always just been sort of a, it almost makes me want to cry. <laughs> like she's always just been sort of like this role model in terms of like, I could be pursuing whatever I needed to pursue in life and she was going to encourage me, but also like show me, she showed me how to be a good person and be a helpful person in the world. And a lot of that is my intention in music. It's not mm-hmm. just, you know, to play around it, it, it. I have a lot of intention that I set when I play music. And I think a lot of that comes from her, that upbringing of just being around someone who was extremely helpful to so many people and 
a really amazing professional mm. woman role model in that way. So, yeah. So um, you studied environmental psychology and environmental education in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And nature seems to be a big part of your life and a big part of your creative expression. And I'm wondering, in our current political environment where climate change is still up for debate, I'm wondering how that affects your creativity and, in particular, your writing. Well, I have sort of, probably to a flaw, a very optimistic personality. Um, And I actually learned in school what just purely experiencing and enjoying nature can do for one's psychology and one's attitude um, in life and also towards behavior change in environmentalism. Um, And so I've had sort of a mission statement since I graduated from college to not focus on, on the negative and, you know, be informed and be educated and act accordingly. But with my music, to give people an opportunity to perhaps hear music as if they were in nature. Mm. So I don't really choose to write about the political crux (laughs) that is going on. I more choose to give a window into the beauty and what is alive and what is inspiring and what is happening at 8,000 feet next to the edge of wilderness where I live. And that's what I do in this whole picture when I find out, you know, truly what's happening with climate change and how the world is changing. It helps me to have a purpose, which is purely just to, to sing about and in and for the land. Hmm. I love that. It's so hard to know how, what, how to be effective or what is effective, but I think inviting people into nature and allowing them to see the beauty of it. So many people don't get to live near it like I do. And Mm -hmm. so I think that in some ways that privilege that I have right now in my life and just the circumstances that have brought me to live in, in the Gunnison Valley where I do and be able to enjoy nature and be inspired by it that it's almost my responsibility and it is what I do. I don't think of it as a responsibility, but it, it's just what I do to share that with people. And I have people all like people that have lived here, who've moved away, who say, you know, my good friend Donnie said, it's important work, Lizzie, you know, like you're helping people feel the peace and the environment there. And, you know, see the trees and the music, you can feel that the wilderness is, is here where I live. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of um, kept me going in these sort of situations. Yeah. So um, you are getting ready to release your debut record, We Will Sing, next month. And it is a record inspired by the mountains surrounding your home. And you say that you engaged in a practice called place-based songwriting. So um, talk to me about that. First of all, what is it? Place-based songwriting is basically the intention and the practice of listening 
to a place while in a place and being inspired by the surroundings of that place and writing music while doing that. When did you start this practice? I think the first time I ever did it was uh, in college. I was I was in Ann Arbor and I there's an amazing arboretum there and I I took a run and wrote my first song mm-hmm. there and that set me off on this sort of journey. I've definitely tried other forms of songwriting, but this is my path and it's always been my path of songwriting, so I've just explored it more and more over the years. Do you set out with the intention of writing when you go for um, a hike? Is it like more of a a scheduled thing or do you find yourself on a hike and allow yourself to stop then and be inspired by whatever you may see? It's gone both ways. Sometimes I'll get the inkling that I have, I have a song. There's like, there's like a feeling inside. And so I make myself go out for a ski or a hike or a walk or go to the river so that I'm in the quiet and I'm in the environment there's like an intuition that I have nowadays when so I'll and I'll just make sure I I go you know just like anyone I I try and practice what I do and sometimes I'll I'll try and go out with the intention of writing but there's never stop like there is occasionally stopping I have to pause for a few seconds every once in a while and get my phone out you know or something to remember you know, what's going on, but most often it, it involves a lot of movement. So oh, interesting. like, yeah, so it's, um, sometimes it's running, <laughs> like sometimes I'm literally like on a trail run. Uh, and that's when my brain gets clearest and, and that can happen. And then eventually I slow down and more of the rhythm of like a walking rhythm can be a little bit more helpful for writing a song, but Oftentimes it'll start with like um, sort of a swifter movement in the environment and having the world pass by at sort of a quicker pace and having the trees turn into like green rather than, you know, having that intense focus sometimes we have. And I think that zone place that people talk about all the time with with sports and exercise really plays a role um, with me and my process. Mm. So. And sometimes, too, when I have an idea that's come and it's maybe not stuck, I'll go out on a walk and try and find the rhythm, Hmm. you know, dance with it, dance with the poetry so that there's more of a chance of finding the cadence of that song than just saying it over and over. Even before I pick up a guitar or a fiddle or something or a mandolin, I'll go walk with it so that it's it's true kind of form that comes out and the poetry that comes out is is kind of true to that feeling of a song. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Um so in listening to your music there's something that feels very real and um tangible about it. And I think that this genre in particular is one that craves this kind of authenticity. And I'm curious as a musician who is trained in the Suzuki method and something that is very strict and precise, what is it like walking the fine line of 
discipline and excellence, but allowing space for humanity and authenticity in your sound? Oh, that's a great question. I think that, you know, the studio is definitely a good place to put that to the test in making a record, you know, all the decisions you make um, about the room you want to do that in and things like that and what sort of experience you want to give people is a good example of where you have to kind of put that type rope walking to the test of authenticity and polishedness. Um, and I definitely felt that in this project. I think the studio brings out the perfectionist in me in mm -hmm. some ways. The hidden, you know, little Suzuki kid that wants every note to be perfect mm -hmm. um, is still very much there. Um, but yeah, uh, just, well, we didn't talk about John Hartford, but I want to bring him into this conversation because he's a good example for me. I usually just choose role models with this stuff, you know, because we're all... Um, you know, just trying to be John Hartford. No, <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I think he's, uh, he's amazing. And I, I think there's the genre of folk music and especially old time and bluegrass and things like that, that it's really, I mean, it can be about, you know, playing the coolest lick, but it's, it's really about the experience, you know, mm -hmm. of, feeling, you know, part of that circle and part of the joy that people are sharing when they play this roots music. And that's the genre that I kind of categorize myself in. So more than anything, I think with my music and especially this record, I wanted to make sure there was always that groove factor going on. Mm. And I think groove is maybe more important to me than anything else. Like the notes, great. You know, the, the ambiance, great. But is the groove there? Like, yeah, that was the goal a lot of the time in the studio, just making sure that, you know, the groove is there so that a listener can also feel that groove. And, you know, whether you miss a note, it's all about what you play next or if you're still in the pocket, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think more than anything, that's my top priority walking that line, but always making sure the groove's there. <laughs> For sure. I, I heard you speak about um, uh, connection, and that's a huge um, reason why you are attracted to this genre. And I just want to say that I think your record, um, people will find a lot of that in your record. And I think you did a bang up job as your first time producing. So um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much. Um, this yeah, has been really thanks great. Thanks for having me. We will sing from Lizzie Plotkin coming out on March 8th. I'm Cindy Howes on Basic Folk. So glad you could join me today. And let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Him. Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management. If you like the artists on Basic Folk, she thinks you'll also like the songwriting duo McDean at McDean Sings on Instagram or visit mcdean.co slash basicfolk. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, wiupfm.org. 
Thank you to Laura McCarthy for producing the podcast, also interviewing Lizzie Plotkin. Awesome job, Laura. Thank you to Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh Band Townspeople, who does our music for Basic Folk. And if you liked this podcast, please subscribe. Tell your friends who love folk music, who are folk music freaks. Um, And I'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.